First of all, I'd like to thank all of you for coming out on uh, what is kind of a rainy, misty night. Uh, is it still raining out there? Yes, it looks like. Uh, hopefully that'll let up while we're here. Well, as, as Teresa mentioned, I had uh, written two books on the uh, Negro Leagues. One about the team that played here in Baltimore, uh, the Baltimore Elite Giants. Surprised to me that it's pronounced Elite and not Elite. The Baltimore Elite Giants, because that was the name of the pool hall in Nashville, Tennessee, the Elite Pool Hall in Nashville, Tennessee, where the team initially formed in 1929. Then the other book I wrote on the most famous woman in baseball is a book about uh, a woman named Effa Manley, who uh, co-owned and ran. She was basically what we today would call the general manager of the... Um, Newark Eagles out of Newark, New Jersey. And she is the, among her other distinctions, she is the only woman uh, in the Baseball Hall of Fame. She was uh, inducted in 2006 and to this day remains the only woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame and was quite a character and I will, I will talk more about her in a little bit. Um, well, let me start, uh, how many of you are familiar with the Negro Leagues? We read books on the Negro Leagues and anybody gone to games. Let me, let me just start with a little background, if I could, on the, the Negro Leagues themselves and then get into the, uh, the team here in Baltimore and uh, F.M. Manley. Um, uh, Negro, uh, there had been um, African-American baseball in the United States since before the Civil War. But it was not until 1920 that um, the uh, African-American baseball became organized into, into leagues with a reg regular schedule of games, a roster, some semblance of, of organization. Uh, uh, a Hall of Fame pitcher by the name of Rube Foster put the leagues together in 1920. Uh, as a way for uh, the players to have a, uh, a more dependable uh, income and, and for fans to know when games were going to be played and, and where they would be played. And so the Negro Leagues really lasted from 1920 to 1950. And of course, during that time, America was basically uh, uh, two countries, a white country and a black country. And the Jim Crow laws were pretty much in effect. And uh, there was this tacit understanding that no African-Americans could play in the major leagues. Hence, that gave more rationale for the existence of the, of the Negro Leagues. It's an opportunity for um, many players who certainly could have played in the uh, majors to, to make a living playing uh, baseball. There were two leagues, one on the East Coast, one in the Midwest. Um, the uh, National Negro League on the East Coast consisted of teams from Newark, uh, New York, Baltimore, and Washington, and in the Midwest, teams came from places like Chicago, Kansas City, Memphis, uh, Birmingham, uh, Cincinnati, Cleveland, some of the others. I like to think of, uh, of Negro League Baseball and, and the Baltimore Elite Giants as, as uh, baseball on a shoestring. I mean, the Negro League owners, while wealthy men, did not have the kind of wealth that the owners of the majors league teams had, like Tom Yawkey of the Boston Red Sox and um, uh, uh, Jacob Rupert, 
who owned the uh, Yankees. I mean, these men had millions and millions of dollars. The men who owned the um, Negro League teams, you know how they made their money? Anybody know how they made their money? Gambling. That's right, gambling. They ran numbers. Uh, they were, they were uh, very skillful numbers running, and they had large organizations of uh, many employees. And um, they were also into real estate, uh, clubs. And within the African-American community, they were seen as, as civic pillars. So they supported uh, a lot of real estate, churches, newspapers, uh, schools, uh, one thing and another. So, of course, at that time, running numbers was illegal, and so they had to forever be on the lookout from the police. Now we have the lottery. I'm not sure what the difference is, but in those days, it was a no-no. So the, here's a picture of the uh, Baltimore Elite Giants in 1944. This is the 1944 team. And you'll notice there are, I think, 18 players there. One characteristic of Negro League teams was is they only had 18, 19 players. They didn't have the complement of 25 that most uh, major league teams did. So that meant that most of the players doubled up on positions. If uh, Leon Day wasn't pitching, he was in center field. Uh, a lot of the guys played two or three infield positions, played the infield and the outfield. Uh, and that was largely due to uh, lack of uh, finances. And speaking of the, uh, okay, this always happens, right? Why does that not advance? There we go. Speaking of uh, owners, this is uh, Thomas T. Wilson. He owned the Baltimore Elite Giants. He was from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, during the 1940s, was reputedly one of the most uh, powerful African-American men in the country. He had contacts all over the country, spent a lot of time in Nashville, delegated a lot of the running of the team to others uh, here in Baltimore. Um, uh, Tom liked the women. He was married four times. He wore pinstripe uh, suits, carried wads of cash. Um, and was uh, known as hard to find. A sports writer said that uh, he was harder to find than a snowball uh, in the summertime. Uh, busy guy, busy guy. So the Negro League teams not only had small rosters, uh, they also didn't have ballparks to play in of their own. So they rented uh, ballparks from the majors. So they played in Yankee Stadium, Scheib Park, Ebbets Field, etc. Um, and in the process of running those fields, the owners made a lot of money. Uh, Clark Griffith, uh, who owned the Washington Senators and uh, Griffith Stadium, where a lot of Negro League games were played, would make $100,000, $150,000 a year renting out the ballpark to, to Negro League teams. And a number of people have said that's one reason why a lot of the owners were resistant to integrating the major leagues, because they would, they would lose that income that they got from running their team out. Now, in the case of uh, Baltimore, most of the Elite Giants played their games uh, in what was called Bugle Field, which uh, was in East Baltimore. Uh, it's no longer there. 
was torn down in 1949, uh, constructed out of wood, had a uh, covered uh, section behind home plate, but the uh, stands along the right and left field lines were, were not covered. So as uh, one of the players said, when it rained, they got wet. Um, they had some, at some times, the uh, team also played in Oriole Park, where the uh, Baltimore Orioles played. At that time, the Baltimore Orioles were in the International League, were a minor league team. And uh, the uh, Orioles Park had a, like 15, 16,000 capacity, whereas Bugle Field was limited to six, 7,000 people. So it was uh, sort of a financial disadvantage in the, where they played. Um, another characteristic of the uh, Negro League teams was they didn't have much of a spring training. Uh, the majors would go to Florida or California or Arizona for a couple of months and bask in the sun and work out and so forth, but not the Negro League teams. Um, Roy Campanella, who many of you I'm sure know, uh, played with the Baltimore Eli Giants for seven years. And talking about spring training, he said, he said, you play yourself into shape. That was the only way the Negro Leagues got on the ball. Man, we didn't just sop up sun and orange juice and run laps and play pepper and listen to theory on the pickoff play, as he would do during spring training when he finally went to the Brooklyn Dodgers. No, sir, he said, regular exhibition games with the hat being passed. So after a week or so of working out in Florida, they would start a string of exhibition games uh, to, to raise money and literally um, uh, pass the hat to generate some money. I, sh I should also add that they had a schedule of games, maybe 60, 70 games a year, but they also played more like 200 games a year uh, because they would play barnstorming games against uh, uh, semi-pro teams, black and white, wherever they could find a game and get some fans to come. They would organize a game. So a lot of these guys played a 200-game schedule over the course of four and a half, five months. Um, they didn't have uh, full-time scorekeepers. So the records on the Negro Leagues are, are incomplete, to say the least. Uh, some of the games were scored, some of the games weren't scored. So there's not a firm documentation of the performance of all the, all the players. And that got to be a problem when people started talking about inducting Negro League players into the Hall of Fame. A lot of people in the Hall of Fame said, well, we would like to do that, but we don't have any records or documentation, so, so how do we go about it? So it turned out to be kind of a classic conflict between those insisting on documentation and, and basically the oral history that the uh, uh, players, uh, African-American players in the Hall of Fame uh, from their days in the majors uh, would provide. So people like Roy Campanella, Monty Irvin, um, worked with the Hall of Fame and did manage to get 10 Negro Leaguers inducted in the Hall of Fame starting with Satchel Page from 1970 to 1979. And then again in 2006, a big group of Negro League players along with Effa Manley were inducted in 2006. But it was a very long, a very long struggle. And the Negro Leagues had no central office. They would meet in hotels in different cities uh, they didn't even have a central uh, filing cabinet. 
Um, but, um, but nevertheless, the games went on, the newspapers covered the games, and it was, a, um, uh, it was an enormous social event for the African-American community. Next to the church, uh, going to games on Sunday, uh, people dressed to the nines, uh, they felt comfortable there, they weren't hassled at the ballpark, uh, and it was what a lot of them called a happening. Uh, uh, Negro League game. I talked with uh, Stanley Glenn, who was a catcher with the uh, Philadelphia Stars from 1944 to 1950, and this was this was his description of of Negro League games. He said he said they were a great happening. The ballpark was one place you could vent. There were so few places to go. Only black-owned restaurants could you go to. Philadelphia, Baltimore didn't make any difference. Black folk had so little to do that they went to the ballpark. It was the number one place to go after church. And we had open seating. At least 20% of the fans were white. They sat everywhere. Uh, we never had that crap, he said. Ladies, Glenn said, came dressed in their Sunday best, high-heeled shoes, silk stockings, long-sleeved gloves, and hats on their heads. And, and this is in 90-degree heat. And, of course, the men came in Sunday suits and tie and hat and shined shoes. And, and for many in, the, um, many in the white baseball community didn't really understand or appreciate oh, that's about, um, the sort of the social dynamics of the Negro League teams. And when um, Jackie Robinson uh, was signed by Branch Rickey, and uh, well, he was signed in 1945, but he joined the Dodgers as the first African-American Major League Baseball player. And when the Dodgers first went to Chicago to play the Chicago Cubs for the first time in 1947, African-Americans by the thousands came to Wrigley Field to see Jackie Robinson playing Major League Baseball. And one of the uh, white sports writers there, uh, Mike Royko, who wrote uh, for the Chicago Daily, he really captured Black's pride in, in Jackie Robinson being with the majors when he said, um, they came by the thousands, pouring off the northbound L's and out of their cars. They did not wear baseball game clothes. They had on church clothes and funeral clothes. Um, a tall middle-aged man that sat next to me had the smile almost painful, of almost painful joy on his face beat his palms together so hard that they must have hurt. So for the white sports, uh, sports writers, uh, this, was a, this was a new dynamic. Another feature of Negro League baseball was their mode of transportation. Uh, they didn't go on airplanes and buses, uh, trains, but they went on buses for the most part. And this was before the days of the interstate highways. So they would go from city to city on a bus that looked something like that. That happens to be a bus of the Newark Eagles, and that's a much better bus than many. That was supplied to the Newark Eagles after they won the World Series in 1946. Um, and they, would, they would travel hundreds of miles in these buses, uh, and oftentimes they found it difficult to find a place to eat, to find a place to sleep, to gas up, to... to uh, to use the bathroom. A lot of times they had to, uh, you know, go to the back door of a restaurant, get sandwiches for everybody, bring them on the bus. And if I can just 
advance a little bit here. Here's, here's a shot of the inside of a bus. That's Monty Irvin on the right-hand side there. Do you notice anything missing from the bus that we take for granted today toward the back of the bus? Sorry? There's, there's no bathroom, right? They didn't have any bathroom on the bus. So, um, and these gentlemen are dressed in coat and ties and hats, and, and many, many traveled like that. But also, you know, they'd pile on the bus after a game in their sweaty uniforms and then drive all night to the next game. So you can imagine what that environment uh, was like. I'll go back to that other bus for a minute. Uh, the player on the right is uh, Roy Campanella. One of the few pictures I can find of Roy Campanella in his Baltimore Elite uh, uniform. He was a catcher, of course. He saw it on Charlie Parks, who was his uh, backup catcher with the, with the Elite Giants. Um, Another distinguishing feature of the uh, Negro Leagues was that was, was the ownership and the um, uh, executive function. Um, team owners also served as league presidents. In the case of the Eastern League, Tom Wilson not only owned the Eli Giants, but he was president of the league, which provoked a lot of controversy, particularly among sports writers and some others, because of the apparent conflict of interest. If some conflict came up and a decision had to be made, somehow or other it always worked out to the Eli Giants' advantage because um, Wilson was the president. And that and some other uh, sort of uh, lackadaisical things brought to the fore. Uh, oh, this is uh, Joe Black. Joe Black pitched by the Eli Giants. Um, and in 1950, he went to the um, uh, Brooklyn Dodgers. And, and, and Joe Black became the first African-American pitcher to win a World Series game, which he did in 1952. He was a rookie of the year in 1952. He also graduated from uh, Morgan State College, as it was called in those days. Um, uh, some other things might be interesting. And tickets to the games cost somewhere between a quarter and a dollar and a quarter. A dollar and a quarter was the uh, best seat in the house, a box seat, and for a quarter you could get in to the bleachers most anywhere. Um, about 1936, uh, Effa Manley on the right and her husband Abe Manley arrived on the scene. Abe was a, uh, he also ran numbers. He had run numbers in Camden, New Jersey, Norfolk, Virginia, um, very wealthy. Married Effa Manley in 1933. Effa grew up in Philadelphia, went to Central High School in Philadelphia, after high school went to New York City, worked in the uh, uh, fashion industry for 15 years before she before she married Abe. And there's some controversy about her uh, ethnicity. Uh, best I could find out, uh, she was a very light-skinned 
African-American who could have passed for white, occasionally did pass for white, but she lived the life of an African-American woman. Uh, her, uh, she was the product of an affair between her mother and, and a uh, uh, seamstress client of her mother. Uh, her mother, we think, was African-American, though also light-skinned, and the client was white. But Effa lived in a family of uh, black brothers and sisters uh, and, and stayed within the black community throughout, throughout her whole life. So she, she lived that culture. Abe owned the team, owned the Newark Eagles, um, played one year in Brooklyn, 1935, the Brooklyn Eagles. Didn't like Brooklyn, didn't make enough money in Brooklyn, so he moved across the river to Newark and started up the Newark Eagles. But he did not like to worry about the administrative side of running a ball club. Abe liked to ride the bus to Florida for spring training. He liked to drink beer with the players at the hotel. He liked to hand out money to the guys, their food money every day. And uh, Monty Irvin told me he would, he would lick his thumb every time he handed out a dollar bill. He would lick his thumb to make sure he was only handing out one dollar bill. Monty said, I wouldn't call, I wouldn't call Abe cheap but we can say he was extremely thrifty. He kept a pretty tight financial rein on things. And so as a result, he turned the running of the team over to his wife, Effa. And Effa uh, went at it uh, whole hog, very enthusiastically. She was, the only, she was the only woman to ever attend an owner's meeting. The owners met every every other month or so, and Effa would go attend the meetings and take an active role. She went, the first meeting she went to, she, she gave the owners hell for running a sloppy organization and generating a lot of bad press and came up with four or five ideas about how things could be done better. And that didn't go over too well. I mean, it turned out she was right. Uh, she, she had a brilliant organizational mind uh, she knew what needed to be done. She was also dealing with um, a group of guys who did not like to be told what to do, and particularly did not like to be told by a woman what to do. And they would say, Abe, you should keep your wife in the kitchen at home. But anyhow, she kept coming to the meetings. Um, and, and she took care of, you know, the uniforms and running the ballpark and making sure the uniforms were clean and all that. She also signed the players. And uh, she would offer them so much money, $150, $250 a month for four and a half, five months as their contract. Some of the players, you know, like all players, would hold out. Say, that's not enough money. I want more money. Effa did not like that. She would write letters to these players' mothers. But one letter she wrote to Don Newcomb's mother. Don Newcomb played for the Eagles. Uh, now, he also went on to the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers in about a 10-year major league career. But at this point in time, Don Newcomb is 19 years old. He's played one year with the Newark Eagles at a so-so year. Um, says he wants more money. So, Effa writes a one-page single-space type letter 
to Don's mother. And she says, among other things, that, that while he had the makings to become one of the outstanding pitchers, he is showing a big head. This is bad, she said. She explained that she was paying a big salary to the catcher uh, named Mackie, also in the Hall of Fame, so that the catcher could help Newton. So she's doing her bit to help Newton. Um, she characterized his record to his mother last year as being next door to nothing. And she said, I wish Donald the best of luck, but I do hate to see him getting off completely on the wrong foot. So the letter had its effect. Don met the bus, went to Florida, signed the contract. Uh, and that was sort of her modus operandi. Uh, a lot of these guys, you know, were young. They're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. Uh, they had never made this kind of money before. Even though it was not a lot of money, you know, by today's standards, most players started at $150, $200 a month. That was a lot more money than a lot of them could make uh, if they were not, if they were doing something besides playing, playing baseball. But some of them could get a big hit. EFA continued trying to, to reform the game, to make the contracts tighter so that, uh, I mean, players would, as you may well know, they would, they would jump their Negro League team, particularly the better players, whenever they could to go play somewhere else for more money. A lot of them went to Latin America, Mexico, Cuba, right in the middle of the season for two, three months where they could quadruple their salary. I mean, not only could they quadruple their salary, but there was, there was no discrimination. In, in Mexico and Puerto Rico and places like that. So they, they just had a wonderful time. And of course, the players were over, a, I mean, the owners were over a barrel because you're not going to say to Satchel Page, we're not going to welcome you back onto our team because you spent four years in the Dominican Republic because Satchel Page and his cohorts could fill lots of seats wherever they played. So again, the owners were kind of hamstrung and um, so forth. And this did not go unnoticed. I mean, the lack of organizations did not go unnoticed by the, the, by the uh, black press. For instance, Wendell, Wendell Smith, sports writer for the uh, Pittsburgh Courier, said that uh, Negro League Baseball has misrepresented itself to the public, has been a putrid character, and a very bad actor. It is controlled by a group of hard-headed, desperate, and incapable individuals who are far from worthy of their position. It was pretty clear in his point of view. And Effa agreed with him. And, um, uh, but Effa's comments at, at the meetings just got these guys angry. And uh, uh, another sports writer, Art Carter, who wrote for the, uh, for the Baltimore Afro-American and the Washington Afro-American, um, wrote about Effa after a meeting uh, where she had you know, made her reform comments and suggestions and so forth. Art Carter wrote about Effa that she had hurled epithets at Composey, one of the other owners, and took advantage of her sex. He did not say how she did that, but that took advantage of her sex. And he characterized Effa as a fanfaron. I didn't know what a fanfaron was. Anybody know what a fanfaron is? You don't want to be one. <laughs> it's a bully and a swaggerer. 
So Ephraim Hanley was characterized in the press as a bully and a swaggerer. And, and Carter concluded his article by saying, baseball is replete with failures where women have been involved. Right? So there is the fanfaron. Doesn't look like a fanfaron. Very attractive woman. But of course, Effa did not take all of this criticism lying down. Uh, all her letters uh, were single-spaced. And they were long letters. And she wrote a two-page, single-space typed letter that she typed um, uh, to, uh, to Carter that, that was published in the newspaper. It said that the, the league will improve only when it adopts sound practices and an impartial staff of officers. Her number one cause was to have an independent person take over the presidency of the two leagues so that you didn't have the conflict of interest between a team owner and a um, president. And she said to Carter that, I hope I can meet you soon so I can tell you a lot of things you should know about baseball. Um, and as smart as she was and as on target as her comments were, they really did not have a lot of effect on, on the performance of the league and the teams until 1949 when the Negro Leagues were kind of fading and players were going into the majors uh, and, then, and there was a 11th hour effort on the part of the owners to try to get their act together but, but that was largely successful, unsuccessful. Um, she even, Effa even sued uh, uh, Branch Rickey. Uh, Branch Rickey, who of course uh, signed Jackie Robinson as the first African-American baseball player and then signed a number of other African-American ball players. Grant Trickey stole these guys from their teams. I mean, when he signed Jackie Robinson, for instance, he just talked to Jackie Robinson. He didn't talk to the owner of the Kansas City Monarchs. He didn't pay the Kansas City Monarchs any money. He said that because there were no really firm contracts he could negotiate one-on-one -on -one with these players. And so that was his modus operandi. And again, a lot of the uh, uh, team owners were saying, uh, well, you know, we should be paid. We want to be paid. If we make a stink about it, you know, we might jeopardize Jackie Robinson and other players' chances of making the majors. Um, so Branch Rickey kind of had a free hand. And he, he did that with Don Newcomb the New York Eagles. He just up and signed Don Newcomb and um, uh, Roy Campanella from the Eli Giants. And then he tried to do it in 1948 with uh, Branch, um, with uh, uh, Monty Irvin, who was playing with the New York Eagles. And um, so when Effa got wind of it, she, she filed suit in court. And uh, when Branch Rickey heard about that, he thought he didn't want that kind of publicity, so he backed off. Uh, Monty was mad at uh, Effa getting in his way of making the majors. Effa was saying, look, we got to put our foot down sometime and get paid for our efforts. Um, and it, it, it worked out well for, for Monty because um, Effa was able to hook him up with the New York Giants. Um, with his uh, avenue into the Negro League. 
So long story short, the Negro Leagues folded about 1950 is the date generally accepted as the point at which the Negro Leagues as competitive baseball teams really faded as many of the players were now being signed into the majors. The African-American fans were deserting Negro League games to go watch uh, the black players in the majors. Um, and there really was just less and less of a need, if you will, for, um, for the Negro Leagues. And, and they kind of fell apart. Um, some of the teams, the uh, Indianapolis Clowns, for instance, played on into the 60s, but it was more of a minor league caliber baseball, where the Negro Leagues were, many instances, you know, AAA and major league quality baseball. Uh, it was not uncommon for a Negro League team to beat a major league team when they would meet in, in spring practice uh, down in San Juan, for instance. <clears throat> and, and so then it got to the point where the Commissioner of Major League Baseball just outlawed playing of the Negro League. Did not like being beat by a Negro League team. Um, Effa, uh, Abe died in 1952. Effa stayed around Philadelphia for a few years. And then she moved to uh, Los Angeles in search of a former boyfriend. Um, Met the boyfriend, Charles Alexander, who was a musician. Got married. Um, they were married for a year, and the, the marriage broke up. She then uh, married for a fourth time. Abe was her second husband. She then married for a fourth time. Um, bought a uh, four-unit complex in Los Angeles, hoping that her family from the east would come visit her, stay with her. They didn't, so she rented it out. Got divorced from her fourth husband. Another guy she had been dating 20 years earlier shows up. Effa thinks about marrying him for number five, but decides, I just could not see myself cooking for him. <laughs> so that was all. So she lived the rest of her life. She died in 1981, so she lived the remaining... 10 years of her life uh, living alone in Los Angeles, but still being very active. Uh, she wrote a book with the help of a sports writer from a Los Angeles paper. She appeared on um, interview shows. She was active in Negro League reunions. Uh, she kept uh, bugging Cooperstown to induct uh, Negro League players in the Hall of Fame, which they finally got around to doing. Um, and so she stands as, as a rare example of a very capable and very outspoken and talented uh, woman in the midst of this sea of uh, testosterone. Um, but uh, she never gave up. She never gave up. She just hung in there until, until the last. And I think in addition to uh, you know, m making a go of the... Uh, Newark Eagles, she was also very instrumental in keeping alive the memory of the, of the Negro Leagues and developing the reunions that many of the players went to. And so I think we also owe her a debt of gratitude for maintaining interest in the, in the Negro Leagues. Here is a shot of uh, opening day at Rupert Field, the home field in Newark of the Newark Eagles. And the gentleman throwing out the ball is... Uh, Mayor Murphy White of Newark. 
It was common practice for the Newark mayor to throw out the first ball at the Eagles games. And, and you can see in this shot sort of how well-dressed people are. I mean, that was, that was not just for opening day. They oftentimes would, particularly on Sundays, dress like that for the, for the games. There's another uh, shot of the stands showing people pretty well-dressed. We've seen that. This is, Effa um, Manley is at the far right standing up. Uh, and this picture is taken about um, 1960. She's with a group of women known as the Heritage Club, which was uh, kind of a, a social volunteer club in, uh, in and around Philadelphia and Germantown. Um, and this was the last picture I came across of her uh, until there is one later in Los Angeles. But, but that's after post-baseball days. Right. So that, I, I, would, I would just also add that, uh, why can't I turn this on? Um, the reason I got interested in, in the Negro Leagues was uh, a number of things. One, one point in my life, I was uh, trying to collect an autograph of every Hall of Fame uh, baseball player. And so then I got, I collected 100 or so. <clears throat> but then I got to the ones I couldn't afford, you know, like... Uh, Three by five postcards signed by Lou Gehrig is two thousand dollars. The same for Babe Ruth, and and more for people I never heard of, and so forth. But I came across the name of Willie Wells, um, who was one of the ten Negro Leaguers inducted during the 1970s, and I had no idea who Willie Wells was. So I I looked into it, found he was he was probably one of the best two or three shortstops, white or black, to ever play the position. And uh, that kind of intrigued me. And so I got into finding out about Willie Wells and uh, wrote a, I did write a biography of, of Willie Wells also. And then in the course of writing that book, I heard about Effa Manley because Willie Wells managed the, played and managed with the Newark Eagles. So I said, I got to find out more about this Effa Manley. And so that, that led to that book. And the, uh, the Eli Giant book really came about because uh, I knew no book had been written about the Eli Giants. There had been books written about other Negro League teams. And I live in Garrett Park, Maryland, which is just down 95 by uh, Bethesda. So I thought, hmm, Baltimore's not, not that far away. They'll do a book on the Eli Giants. And uh, that was a marvelous experience. I got to know Baltimore like I had never... Uh, known Baltimore, talked to people who'd been to the games, uh, talked to former players, talked to people who sat in the stands, uh, learned about a community called Old West uh, that was up along the Pennsylvania Avenue corridor where the um, uh, elite African Americans lived. You had your top uh, lawyers and educators and doctors and dentists uh, who lived in this, uh, at that time, segregated area. And the other thing I learned was that as the Negro Leagues were dissipating and as baseball was becoming integrated, of course, America was becoming integrated, though at a slower pace than, than Major League Baseball. But as a result of integration, places like Old West tended to, to dissipate because people had more choices of where they could go and live and so forth. And uh, you had people who graduated from Harvard and Yale teaching 
at the high school in, in Old West. And as integration came to be, that was no longer the case because they could, they could live in, in better places. So I always thought that was a bit ironical uh, piece of baseball and social history. All right, so that's enough talk. Let me stop there, see what uh, questions or comments you might have. Yes, sir. Why is Assistant Dirt now back in American baseball players? That is a good question. Um, uh, I don't really, I don't really know, but that certainly is the case. There's an upsurge of uh, Latin American uh, players. Uh, I mean, I have heard speculations that um, African Americans are more drawn to football and basketball these days in, in uh, high school and college. Uh, that um, a lot of the um, scouting and training efforts done by major leagues is is focused in the um, uh, in Latin America, and that there's very little focus in in the inner city. There is this organization called RBI. I don't know if you runs batted in, which tries to promote uh, uh, baseball amongst youth in, in inner cities. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about I think with integration. Integration, in my opinion, destroyed a lot of uh, institutions that African Americans have built, such as restaurants, places of entertainment, uh, places that you went to have fun. And uh, we, uh, as you said, as we began to uh, become employed in the major leagues, uh, there was nothing uh, for the African American to go for in terms of his community because he didn't uh, have the finances to continue the Negro League, so to speak. Uh huh, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of thing. Yes, ma'am. I walked in late, and you probably discussed this, but how profitable were the teams? And when the teams in the Negro Leagues played Major League Baseball, what was the economic model? I and mean, how was compensation given between the two teams? Was it, would the games be played like in one stadium? Would it be like two thirds, one third? Or? Mm. Uh, good question, good question. The, um, um, Negro leagues themselves varied in profitability. And um, oftentimes, owners like Abe Manley had to pay out of their own pockets players' salary and rental fees and one thing or another. The most profitable time for Negro League baseball was during World War II. And there were thousands of defense jobs created up and down the East Coast. And so a lot of African Americans came up from the South able to find jobs. People living in, in cities like Baltimore were able to find jobs and find better paying jobs than they had before. So they had more money for uh, uh, things like entertainment and baseball. And uh, I think from like 42 to 46, the Newark Eagles actually made money. I don't think the Baltimore Elite Giants as a team ever made more than $1,000 a year or something like that. So. And in terms of the economic arrangements when the teams played, it would be something like if they rented a major league stadium, say they rented uh, Yankee Stadium, a sizable chunk of the gate, 30, 
would go to the major league team, to the Yankees. And then the two Negro League teams would split what was left of the gate after they had paid expenses, which included uh, you know, security and ushers and, and concessionaires and the scorecard and lights and one thing or another. So they didn't take a percentage of the concession take? They paid the concessioners? No, no, they did take a, t they did take, a take of the concession, yes. But they had to oftentimes hire people to, right. to uh, sell the hot dogs and the beer and so forth. Okay, so when the Negro League teams played the major league teams, would it be like a 60-30 split? I'm just curious. I don't, it, that one didn't happen too often. Okay. Um, and, and, and when it did happen, I don't remember coming across how, what the financial arrangements uh, were. But um, Effa Manley did ask Branch Rickey, how about the Eagles play the Dodgers? And that would be a big draw. Uh, they were both two very good teams. Oh, no, the Yankees, not the Dodgers. Uh, let's have the uh, Eagles and the Yankees play an exhibition game in Yankee Stadium, and that would draw lots of people. Well, the Yankees, uh, uh, McPhail, one of the McPhail brothers was in charge at that point, and he would have nothing to do with it. He, I mean, the, the pride Trump profits. He, he didn't want to risk being beaten uh, because the winter before, the uh, Newark Eagles had won two games out of three from the Cincinnati Reds. They were both uh, spring training in uh, Puerto Rico. And so word of that got back and, and and the, and the majors just didn't want to take the chance of being publicly beaten. Yes, sir. That's a good question. I don't know. Anybody know? I don't know. As I recall, I, my knowledge is very limited. There is an exhibition of that, of those teams at Cooperstown, and there was a movie, A League of Their Own, which I don't remember seeing any Negro players in the movie. That's a good question, though. I don't know. I would tend to doubt it. I would be surprised, but that's a good, we should find out. It's a good question. Yes, sir. It was, it was uh, in many ways, it was an uh, informal networking word of mouth kind of thing. Uh, in the case of the uh, uh, Baltimore Eli Giants, a lot of the players came from the Nashville area. They had uh, Negro League minor league teams, the minor league type teams, if you will, in and around Nashville where Tom Wilson lived. And so players like Junior Gilliam, for instance, came from Nashville, came to Tom Wilson's attention because as a 15-year-old, he was tearing up the league in Nashville and came to the Giants and then on to the Dodgers. He also had uh, scouts, buddies of his, you know, other number runners and whatnot 
in different cities, and, and they would be on the lookout. And players would come uh, and ask for a tryout. Uh, Don Newcomb showed up at the Manley's apartment in Newark. Great big guy. He's 6'5 and 200 pounds or something like that. Big guy. Knocks on the door. Wants to see Abe Manley. He's not there. Effa answers the door. And of course, Effa's first question is, well, why is a big young guy like you not in the Army? And he said, well, I've figured that out. Uh, what he meant by that. But he looked promising, so they took him to Florida, and that's how, that's how he got on the team. So it was, it, was, it was not an organized, they had no organized farm system, for instance, uh, like the majors. It was very informal. Hear about somebody. Um, Abe would, uh, uh, he got a number of players. He got Monty Irvin and Lenny Pearson and uh, a couple of others from the Montclair, New Jersey area. He would, he, Abe would ride around in his black Lincoln Continental uh, convertible to watch high school games. And that's how he found four of the better players for the Eagles. In the South, during uh, segregation, baseball was a center sometimes for entertainment. Those communities who played baseball around their churches. And then we would, uh, when I grew up in the South, hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Was a question over here? Who were some? I'm sorry. I had put together a string of pictures. I didn't know if we wanted to show them all, but. This is a shot of downtown Baltimore. I'm not sure exactly where, about 1938 or 39. Clean Air Act was not yet passed. But heavy, heavy industry. That was a large part of the city. This is a picture of, uh, anybody know who that is? Um, it's the mayor. Yeah, yeah Mayor McKeldin. Not Murphy. But Mayor McKeldin, Theodore R. McKeldin, who was a big supporter of uh, the Eli Giants. Uh, he would uh, uh, occasionally th uh, throw out the first pitch at opening day games for the, for the Giants. Uh, when uh, the uh, Baltimore Orioles, Oriole Yard Stadium burnt down in 1944, people were concerned the Orioles were going to Kicked the Giants out of Bugle Field, but McKeldin stepped in and prevented that from happening and got the Orioles another place to play so the uh, Giants could stay in Bugle Field. And this is a shot of African American workers in an, uh, uh, assembling um, a fighter plane in one of uh, Baltimore's uh, industries, like uh, uh, Martin, Glenn Martin Industries, was a, uh, a better time than, than most for uh, employment. For, for men and, and for women. Uh, that's Eli Giant. That is the shortstop. Huh. I remind myself of Rick Perry. His name is 
I will think of it. And this is a shot of a Negro League game in uh, Griffith Stadium in uh, 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 Washington, D.C. Uh, that's cool Papa Bell sliding into third base. He was, he was probably the fastest of the Negro League players. Someone said, I think it was, you hear a lot of these stories, but someone said uh, he, could, uh, he could hop into bed, you know, before it got dark after he turned off the light. I don't know if he did or not. This is a shot of the uh, Elite Giants uh, after they won the, uh, the uh, championship of the Eastern League in uh, 1939 at um, uh, Yankee Stadium. It's one of, the, one of the rare full team shots of the Elite Giants. And the uh, gentleman in the hat here, his name, his name is Vernon Green. This is Tom Wilson in the white hat, of course. Vernon Green was sort of the effamanly of the Eli Giants. He took care of the day-to-day -day operations of the New York Giants, and, and he was known and beloved by all as Fat Daddy. Oh, and this is Willie Wells on the, on the uh, donkey. Uh, <clears throat> surrounded by two attractive women. He himself is dressed to the nines. Um, that's probably his car in the background. And this is taken in, uh, in Mexico. I, I, the guys had a wonderful time in Mexico. I mean, Monty Irvin said, and been for his having a family in the States, he'd have just stayed and played in Mexico. He said, you know, I could have run for mayor there. They loved their baseball. Uh, they adored the players. They didn't care if they were white or black or whatever. And they just treated them royally. Um, and, uh, and Monty said, you know, he said it used to take me a month to get used to life back in the States after I come back from Mexico. This is a scorecard uh, for an Eli Giant games, I don't know if you can see it, but here on the left is the Eli Giant lineup. And then to save money, they would paste in the roster for the visiting team, in this case, the Homestead Grays. So they, they used the same layout, just pasted in a new visiting team as need be. This is a stadium pin for the uh, Eli Giants that was sold as a souvenir at Bugle Field. Sells today on eBay for about $130. You come across one, take good care of it. Whoops. And this is uh, a reunion photograph of Negro League players. This is uh, Buck Leonard on your left. Um, Hall of Fame, played with uh, Homestead Gray's great power hitter. Uh, many called him the... Uh, Black Lou Gehrig. Monty Irvin said we could have called Lou Gehrig the white Buck Leonard. The guy next to him is uh, Larry Doby. This is after their playing days. They're at a hotel in Chicago at an all-star game. It's Larry Doby. Uh, next is Willie Wells. Uh, and uh, to the far right is uh, Monty Irvin, who, and then, uh, and Cool Papa Bell is uh, sitting down, 
uh, Larry Doby's wife is uh, in the white top. Monty Irvin's wife, Dee, is uh, in the center of the table. Um, and Monty Irvin, he went on to play with uh, the New York Giants one year with the Chicago Cubs, but then he also went on to be uh, an aide to uh, baseball commissioner and uh, became very active in Negro League reunions and uh, is today 92 years old and lives in uh, Houston, Texas. He's still bright as a tack. He loves to talk baseball and he's just a phenomenally nice guy. We'll just listen to all of your dumb questions and give you straight answers and it's uh, glad to see you. And, and he also continues to work hard at keeping alive uh, the memory of the Negro Leagues. So people feel he has done a wonderful job of that. That's it. <laughs>